Welcome to the Augustine class. There was an issue with our recording of the live class, so this is a re-recording, which is going to feel a lot different than having a live audience in front of me, but nonetheless, we move forward with session six of Augustine. This session is called Free Will and Grace, The Pelagians Arrive. The devotional question for today is, how free is my free will? And a secondary question, and to whom does the glory belong? If you'll remember, last week we talked about how Augustine finally had stability in his life. We've looked at his entire life, even post-conversion, was very unstable, and it was in smaller sections, like five to ten years until last week when we looked at a much larger section of his life beginning in 391 when he moved to Hippo Regis until the year 410. A 19-year period he is in the ministry, he is stable, he is uh, defending the Christian faith, he's doing a lot of writing, things like that. And in the year 410 is when things changed again because Rome came under attack by the Visigoths uh, or the barbarian tribes. And that threw his world back for a loop again. But we're going to, again today, look at another large section of his life. It is actually the final 20 years. Going, We're going to pick up at 410 and go to the time of his death in the year 430. He died at the ripe old age of 76 years old. So we spoke last week about the Donatists and how they were a schismatic sect within Christianity, but specifically within North Africa. And we had talked a few weeks ago about the Manichaeans. Now, the Manichaeans were child's play for him. It was not difficult for him to deal with them and their false religion. The Donatists were a challenge. They, they were actually pretty difficult to deal with, and... Uh, it took, he wrote a lot against the Donatists, but the Pelagians were a rival. They legitimately were the most, they were the group that he dedicated the most time to than any other sect. Uh, he poured a lot of his life work, especially in those last 20 years, into Pelagianism and Pelagius himself. So this is a very important time of life for Augustine, and it makes for a very important session today. And it gets at the heart of some important doctrinal questions that revolve around sin, nature, free will, grace, original sin, things like that. So what's going on? Well, in the year 410, the city of Rome was sacked by the Visigoths. They come in, the emperor could not defend it, they fled the city, and wartime, just like back then, just like today creates refugees. People don't stay, they have to leave, and a bunch of refugees left the northern Mediterranean, they left Italy, and were pouring into Africa. By the thousands, they were coming into North Africa, bringing stories of the horrible destruction that they saw, and many of them looked for a target, and they blamed Christianity as the reason for Rome's, the, the taking of the city of Rome, that it was sacked. See, if they had stayed with the old gods, it would have never happened. But the empire convert, or not only legalized Christianity, but eventually it became the state religion. And so they were saying that it is because of Christianity that this is happening to us. 
Alarmed by this, Augustine began writing the greatest book of his career. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called The City of God. This massive book, something like 27 volumes, huge, and it was all by hand. They must have had huge wrist muscles back in the day. No computers, no printing press. This was a book that was all about showing that current events are the outworking of God's eternal plan. See, there's the earthly kingdom, there's the city of man, or if you extend it further, the city, the kingdom of Satan. Those are the things that are on earth, they are secular. But then there's the city of God, our heavenly Jerusalem. This is going on in the world at the same time. Now, the city of man is always going to rise and fall according to God's purposes. But those in the heavenly Jerusalem, God's people, they have ultimate victory. We, we are citizens on the winning side. Yes, Rome falls, and that you might not like that, but it's not the end of the world. Rome was always eventually going to fall. Every kingdom rises and falls. It's part of God's plan. So the important thing is being citizens in heavenly Jerusalem, and then work all the political stuff out, not go to the politics side first. I'm a Roman. I'm here to defend Rome, and Christianity is just the side benefit. I would love to talk, to do a deep dive into the city of God, but that is not the focus of this session. It is a great book. So, amongst the refugees that were coming, though, were, and, and spreading these types of tales even, uh, but amongst these refugees was a certain man named Pelagius. Now, Pelagius, to some of you, that name is like, I'm saying a boogeyman here a bad guy. Now, Pelagius, he was born in the year 354. He was a contemporary of Augustine, and that year 354 is the same year that Augustine was born. They were born in the same year. However, Pelagius would die in 418, whereas Augustine would live to 430. So they died 12 years apart, but they were born the same year. And Pelagius is one of those who came out of the destruction of Rome and came to North Africa. He had this belief that the human race is not entirely sinful. We are not, but rather there is a retention, this residue of uncorrupted goodness inside of us. And because we have this goodness inside of us that's not affected by sin, if we properly nourish this goodness, we can win our souls back to God. Now, some of you might be recoiling at what you're hearing right now. The red flags going all off. This is not the type of belief that we would typically hear. In fact, we readily preach against this type of view. But this, the, the views of Pelagius downstream, it raged on for centuries after his life. And I would I'd submit to you that the downstream effects of Pelagianism is still alive and well today. Perhaps you'll make the connections as we go forward. But he taught that we are not fundamentally sinful by nature and guilty before God. In fact, there is a goodness inside of us that we can nurture to win ourselves back to God. As a historical note, this was going to force Augustine to be more precise and to develop his ideas about grace, predestination, and that became a fundamental resource for Western theology ever since. He warned against Pelagianism, and soon it did attract widespread condemnation. But it was very popular in those years, and continued in influence for centuries, and like I said, even today. The position, or let me tell you a little bit more about Pelagius first. 
born in 354 in Britain. He was supposedly a British monk who did some ministry in Britain. He moved to Rome, and then after Rome was sacked, he came to North Africa. Uh, Carthage, actually. Now, I say supposedly because all the information that we have about Pelagius is basically just from his opponents. We have very little surviving work from Pelagius himself. But this is the good thing about Augustine, and Augustine would be a major opponent, the single greatest opponent that Pelagius had. Augustine was very concerned with being fair to the people who he would write against and about. So he quoted Pelagius at length in his, some of his responses to Pelagianism. So we've been able to reconstruct a lot of Pelagius's writings based on the quotations from Augustine, who took it word for word. He was, he was very concerned that he wasn't misrepresenting Pelagius. So it's very valuable that we have that. That's how we're able to reconstruct some of this stuff. So during the attack on Rome, he fled to Carthage, Africa, and he set up shop there. Augustine himself would be very familiar with Carthage. He, of course, was there as a late teenager and his, throughout most of his 20s. He was uh, a Manichaean while he was there, but he got very restless with Carthage. So, uh, more about Pelagianism. He believed that humanity did not become depraved from the fall. We are not depraved, according to Pelagianism, but we retain the capacity to will ourselves back to God and the way that we do that is because we have the ability to live a holy life naturally. We can choose to be holy, to do which is good, to do that which is pleasing God. And he says this because he does not believe in the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin was not very well articulated up until this point. Uh, but one thing about controversy is that controversy brings precision. A lot of doctrines we did not become very precise about until we were forced to, until there was controversy about it. So this is when the doctrine of original sin really became defined precisely. And Pelagius de de denied original sin, which is the belief that uh, as we are all children of Adam and because of Adam's sin, he brought onto us as part of the curse, the fallenness of sinful nature. We, Everybody who comes after Adam takes on the guilt of Adam's sin. We are implicated in Adam's sin. And Pelagius did not believe that. He teaches that we are not depraved. We do not pass on original sin. We do not have a depraved nature. But actually, humanity has a fundamentally good nature. We're born good. We don't pass on original sin. Because of this, we have the ability and can choose by our own strength, by this goodness inside of us, to obey the commands of God and live a sinless life. A sinless life. Can you believe it? They didn't have the term sinless perfectionism back then. That is a doctrine today. Some people today actually believe that you can live a perfectly sinless life. Uh, they didn't have an, a doctrinal term for it back then, but that was essentially what Pelagius taught, that you could become holy enough that you never sinned anymore. Can you imagine? But for Pelagius, man, the reason that you can do this is because you have a completely autonomous free will. And I've stressed that word autonomous because you don't really say much by saying that you have free will. If I say I have free will, that doesn't tell you very much what kind of freedom who makes it free? What am I free to do? And what about my will? What kind of will do I have? Like, Tell me the nature about this. You need to have a prefix there. So he taught a autonomous free will is what we have. Think like a, 
a sovereign nation, an autonomous country that is not ruled by another but makes decisions for themselves. That is his view of free will, that we are autonomous. We can freely choose between good and bad, right, uh, and wrong, and it is not under the compulsion of another or from a fallen nature or anything like that. We are completely free to choose uh, free of any other influence. He believed no part of sin is passed on, and so we come out good, able to choose between good and evil. So we kind of put ourselves into sin later on by our own free, autonomous free will. Pelagius gained followers. Uh, he had some influence in Britain, and then when he came to Italy, he gained even more followers. Actually, it was during this time in Rome when his views intensified. The issue is that he saw so many of the Christians in Rome with lax lives and very lax views towards sin, and he blamed it on the views of grace, that these ideas of sovereign grace made, it took responsibility off of man. So he was preaching that because of our goodness and the importance of living a holy life, that we can win ourselves to God, that this view of grace that takes it off of human responsibility in his mind was fundamentally a, a wrong thing, a wrong thing to teach. And that'll, that'll attract attention, that'll gain followers. He gained followers in Italy, he gained followers in Africa, and this is important because it surpasses a main criticism that Donatism had. You'll remember Donatism didn't have universality. It didn't get outside North Africa. It was not the same with Pelagianism. He got followers all over. That is why I say that even though the Donatists, they were a challenge, Pelagianism is a rival. It was much more subtle than Donatism because it's beyond just outward behavior. It strikes at central questions of doctrinal importance like sin, grace, human nature, salvation. Uh, questions like how evil are we? How deep is the effect of the fall? These are very, very important questions. And it gets at the heart of the gospel. Like, what is the level of God's grace? How do we receive it? How are we right with God? What is our nature? The, the, these are questions that go to gospel truth. And so Augustine, he clearly knows the stakes. And he becomes Pelagius' harshest critic and public opponent. And at this point, I want to say three cheers for Augustine. This is a man who knew the scriptures, who loved God, who was a a pastor who loved his people and stood for the truth and um, taught people about all the doctrines of the faith, he was not going to back down and see the work being done, the work of the gospel, be undermined by false teaching. And so he put himself out into the public. He challenged the ideas of the day. He was engaged in the issues of his day, unafraid of the consequences. He was going to stand for the truth, do it out of love for God and love for his neighbor. I say three cheers for Augustine. Now, I say that he was the harshest critic and public opponent of Pelagius because he would write some 30 books directed at Pelagianism. 30! Again, wrist muscles must have been massive. Imagine writing 30 books at one overall topic. But in these books, he's explaining different doctrines, like original sin, the teaching on free will, divine grace, baptism. He writes about the soul. I'm going to end up quoting from one of his books about the soul uh, in a bit. So he's doing a bunch of writing about this on all kinds of doctrinal topics. But the controversy is raging in the empire. 
they call councils to come together. They need to work this thing out. This is blowing up even bigger than the Donatists and in a bigger region. It's not just Africa, remember. Pelagius is officially accused of heresy in the year 415. He gets accused of heresy, and a few years later, he would face a council in the year 418 that was going to battle it out. Is this man a heretic? And Augustine is the primary spokesman, almost like the, the prosecutor, you could say, for he's, he represents the church, the Catholic that is the universal church, not the Roman Catholic church, but he represented the mainline universal church against Pelagius, who is accused of heresy, and he gives the grounds, the evidences, to substantiate the charge of heresy. There are nine statements that came that, that were levied against Pelagius. Now, a couple of these, I'm going to tell you all nine. A couple of them might make you uncomfortable, but we got to understand, let the early church be the early church. There's been developments in theology. I'm going to say all nine. We're going to agree with most of them, but a couple of them might make you uncomfortable. Let's see. Statement number one. These are truth statements that Augustine is saying that Pelagius denies, making him a heretic. Number one. Death came from sin, not man's physical nature. Okay? So the reason that we die and there is death in humanity and creation is because of sin. The curse of sin. The effects of sin. God put a curse on the earth and upon people after the fall of Adam and Eve. So... It is not just because God made us with a body that expires after 80 years or so. Augustine is saying that because that Pelagius' views deny that death comes from sin. That, that would make sense. Imagine if we are born with this goodness, we are not tainted by sin, then why do we, how, does, how can we say that we die because of sin? No, for them it would be then from physical nature only. That's wrong. Statement number two, this might make you uncomfortable, but this was the, the view of the church of the day. Infants must be baptized to be cleansed from original sin. Infants must be baptized to be cleansed from original sin. Their views of baptism are a bit different than ours today. Kind of like the sinless perfectionism talk, that that's, that's a doctrine we have now. Uh, false one, but it's a doctrine now that they didn't have a term for back then. It's the same with the doctrine called baptismal regeneration. Their views of baptism was that you gain a sin nature. In your birth, you're born depraved and fallen. And the purpose of baptism is that it cleanses you from the penalty of original sin. And so it was really important for them. If you did not get baptism, then you were not cleansed from original sin. That was their view. We don't talk this way about baptism, and I'd love to tackle the baptism question, but that's not what we're looking at primarily today. But that, that they're saying that Pelagius denies this. Statement three. Justifying grace covers past sins and helps avoid future sins. Okay? It is grace that covers our sins. Not our efforts. Not our own goodness. It is God's justifying grace. And I love that that word is there because we are not justifying ourselves. It's the grace of God that justifies us and helps us avoid future sins purely God's grace, not our own goodness. And I say amen to that. Statement four, the grace of Christ imparts strength and will to act out God's commandments. How can we obey God's commandments? Well, according to Augustine and the Council of the Church, 
It is because the grace of Christ gives us the strength and will to act out God's commandments. We cannot obey and please him without God's strength and will, without his grace. It's not by our own ability. So Pelagius is saying that we do have the ability to act out God's commandments apart from the grace of Christ. Because again, we have autonomous free will in his view. Statement number five. No good works can come without God's grace. So this builds off of the last one. You cannot achieve good works without God's grace. If you are not in the Lord, all your good works are not impressing God. You're not winning yourself to him. So, but Pelagius would be denying that. Augustine says, no good works can come without God's grace. Statement number six. We confess we are sinners because it is true, not from humility. We confess we are sinners because it is true, not from humility. So we're not just saying that we're sinners as a way to make us seem like we're humble and oh, like, like look how look how pious I am. You know, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I, I actually believe that I can be perfect. No, we are sinners because we are sinners. We, we have it in ourselves. It's in our nature. We're born with it. Pelagius denies this. For, him, for them, it's just, it's a humble thing to say. Statement seven. The saints, that is Christians, ask for forgiveness for their own sins. We need forgiveness for our own sins because we are sinners. It is true that we are sinners. We're not asking uh, for forgiveness for somebody else's sins as though our prayer can accomplish that. It can't. Nor can anybody else's prayer accomplish forgiveness for our sins. We pray for forgiveness for our own sins because we are personally guilty before God. Eighth statement. The saints, Christians, also confess to be sinners because they are this is similar to the statements before. We confess to be sinners because it's true that we are. We are sinners. So we are personally guilty before God, not right before him by nature. And the final statement, this one might, again, make you uncomfortable, but it says this. Number nine, children dying without baptism are excluded from both the kingdom of heaven and eternal life excluded if you're not baptized. This connects to the other baptism one before, because if they die without baptism, then in their view, they died without being cleansed from original sin. So they needed to be baptized, and if they weren't, they would be cast away from the kingdom. Now, why did they focus on this baptism stuff? Because Pelagius is going around telling people that they have this inherent goodness, and that baptism isn't all that important to be covering original sin or anything like that, so they're putting all of this off, so they're trying to double down on their belief that baptism cleanses from original sin, because even though Pelagius is talking as though everyone else is very lax in their views of sin, and, and he's so holy and all this, you're act, like when you actually think about it, you're putting off baptism, you're putting off the sacraments in the church, and so they want to go they want people to be baptizing, thinking this way, thinking of them as uh, those who are in need of God's grace. Because then it, you grow up with this this view, again, back then, you grow up with this view that you aren't guilty before God. And that was a big deal for Augustine and the council. So this was presented at the council in Carthage in 418, and the council sided with Augustine. Pelagianism is declared a heresy, Pelagius himself is excommunicated. His excommunication would not last that long because he would die later on that year. This was in 418. He would die later on 
that year. But Pelagianism did not go away. It remained influential, and as I said, it continues to have impact. Do you know any any Christian sects today that talk about having autonomous free will, the moral ability to choose between right and wrong, and that is something that we're about to look at. That's an important thing, is moral ability. Because that gets at how did Augustine actually deal with the claims of Pelagius? We got his grounds for heresy and all that type of stuff against Pelagius, but how did he specifically deal with the claims? And it's kind of he breaks it up sort of into dealing with the sin, the nature of sin, human nature and freedom, and grace. Kind of those three categories. Sin, nature, grace. Now, Augustine would teach original sin, the biblical doctrine of original sin. He would teach the depravity of man. No, we are not born uh, neutral or even good before God. We are born depraved because of original sin. It does pass on to infants. We are born in it. And this is a key part of Augustinian theology. He made a distinction between natural and moral freedom. Okay, two forms of freedom. Natural freedom, moral freedom. This conversation has been picked up by many in church history, including Martin Luther, including John Calvin, and including Jonathan Edwards. And it continues today. This, this stuff doesn't come out of a vacuum. So he taught that there is natural freedom and moral freedom. Now, what are, what are those? Natural freedom is you are free to act in accordance with your nature. This is something that we accept. We believe this. You are, if your nature is one where you are, um, you, you are the, you're so good. You are totally good. Your nature is that of goodness. We do believe and teach that the Bible even teaches that you are free to act in accordance with your nature. You will do good things. The problem is we have to identify what is our nature then. If we have natural freedom, well then what is our nature? And this is where we understand that the Bible speaks so plainly about our fallenness before God, about the sin that we have. We'll look at verses in a minute. But we, in our nature, are fallen in sin. And not just fallen. We, we actually got to take a stronger word. We are dead in sin before God. We do not have life before him until he gives us life. We have natural freedom. But our nature is depraved and dead. We will choose evil. 100% of the time, without the justifying grace of God, as talked about before, we will choose evil. So are we making a choice? Yes, we are making a free will choice, but we are making a choice with an enslaved nature. We do have natural freedom, but it's enslaved, it's in bondage. That's why Luther wrote the bondage of the will. Our natural freedom is in bondage to sin. And um, that then J Jonathan Edwards would write a great book called The Freedom of the Will. So a bondage of the will and freedom of the will, but they were both saying the same thing. They just changed the one word in the title, but they're teaching the same thing. So then the other category of freedom is moral freedom. This is the right to be able to decide between right and wrong, that I have the autonomous ability even to pick between right and wrong. So we talked about nature, like how are we by nature? We are, we are sinners. Okay, 
But if we're sinners, do we have moral freedom, even as a sinner, to choose by way of our own freedom that which is good? And the answer is no, we do not. Augustine's view is no, we don't have moral freedom. We do have natural freedom, but we don't have moral freedom. We cannot choose our way to do good things on our own before God. This follows from the fallenness of our nature. If we, are, if we, if we have freedom naturally in our, in our nature, but it's enslaved, then we do not have moral freedom. We cannot choose by the power of ourselves to do that which pleases God. Because the Bible does state that without faith it is impossible to please God. Well, how do we get faith? Faith is a gift of God given to us. So that already seems to be saying and implying that we cannot please God unless he grants us the ability to, meaning I do not have the moral freedom to please him, to choose good. I don't have it. If I am an atheist and I'm donating to a charity, that's not justifying me before God. I'm not making an autonomously moral good choice before God. I'm not. My nature is dead before him. So that was Augustine's view. The only way out of this condition is God's divine grace, God's justifying grace given to dead people to be made alive again from God. So... I've mentioned before Roman Catholicism and the Roman Catholic Church. This developed, and they deny the te Augustine's teaching of original sin, moral freedom, and divine grace, and yet they appropriate him. They call him a saint in their church. They think that Augustine's on their side. And yet, if you look into Roman Catholic teaching, they themselves deny Augustine's teaching of original sin, moral freedom, and divine grace, and yet they... They, they appropriate him as though he is on their side. I'm holding right now the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is an authoritative teaching in the Catholic Church. There's an endorsement right on the cover from Pope John Paul II. It says this, a sure norm for teaching the faith. So this has the stamp of approval from Roman Catholic leadership, from the Pope himself. I'm going to read for you. A little bit about what they have to say about original sin, about human nature, uh, about even, they're even going to mention Augustine and Pelagius, and then we're going to talk about freedom. So I'm just going to read a couple little sections here. This is part one, the profession of faith, 404 in the Roman Catholic Catechism. I'm quoting now. How did the sin of Adam become the sin of all his descendants? The whole human race is in Adam, as one body of one man. By this unity of the human race, all men are implicated in Adam's sin, as all are implicated in Christ's justice. Okay, we're good so far. Continuing. Still, the transmission of original sin is a mystery that we cannot fully understand. Okay, we'll pause there. That's very interesting that... You're going to say something that we're all implicated in Adam's sin, but right after that, you already have to say it's a mystery that we can't fully understand. Now, I'm not about to say that we fully understand all of this stuff, but if that's the first thing you're going to say after your opening statement, I'm already on guard that you're probably going to try to sneak something in here and cover it under the guise that, oh, we can't fully understand, so we're just going to say some stuff. I find that interesting that they're already saying that, but let's go on. Um, by, uh, let's go to 405 here. This is just down the page a little bit. Although it is proper to each individual 
original sin does not have the character of a personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. Whoa. Going on. It is a deprivation of original holiness and justice. But human nature, listen to this, but human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded in the natural powers proper to it. I'm going to stop there. What we've read so far, this is word for word in the Roman Catholic Catechism. So we're all implicated in Adam's sin. It's a big mystery, though. But original sin doesn't have the character that we are we have personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. Wait, so which is it? Are we all implicated, or do we not have personal fault in us before our Creator? Because they're trying to hold both of them right now. Not only that, but human nature is not totally corrupted in the Roman Catholic Church. It's only wounded. Okay, I'm gonna go right. To, I'm gonna go down a little bit more to 406. I've gone from 404 to 405 to 406. Quoting again, the Church's teaching on the transmission of original sin was articulated more precisely in the fifth century, especially under the impulse of Saint Augustine's reflections against Pelagianism. All right, so they're going to tell us now how the Church, the Roman Catholic Church's views on this developed. And they're now invoking Augustine and Pelagianism. Uh, so we're, we're going to touch on that. Now I'm continuing. And in the 16th century, in opposition to the Protestant Reformation. I'm going to stop there. So they're saying their view came mostly from Augustine dealing with Pelagius and from Catholics who were against the Protestant reformers. That is where their views come from. Let's move on. Pelagius held that man could by the natural power of free will and without the necessary help of God's grace, lead a morally good life. He thus reduced the influence of Adam's fault to bad example. Yeah, that's pretty much true. Yep. The first Protestant reformers, on the contrary, taught that original sin has radically perverted man and destroyed his freedom. Okay, so the Roman Catholics are saying that that's bad that the reformers were going too far to say that original sin has radically perverted man and destroyed his freedom. They don't believe that. All right, well, they're again, they're just saying freedom. That's not the most helpful term in the use just to use. What do they mean by freedom? I'm going to go a little bit further into this Roman Catholic Catechism. I'm now in Part 3, Life in Christ, Article 3, Man's Freedom. Freedom and Responsibility. Those are all the titles that I had to get to, just to make sure that I could cite this properly. So we are in their teaching now about what this freedom is, that they think the reformers went too far in, in talking about. 1731. Freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. All right, so we can do this or that. We have the power to act or not act. Going to 1732, the very next one. As long as freedom has not bound itself definitively to its ultimate good, which is God, listen to this, there is the possibility between choosing good and evil, and thus of growing in perfection or of failing and sinning. Okay, so... Their version of freedom is that we have the ability to do this or that, 
deliberate actions for to make us responsible or not responsible and we have the ability to choose between moral good and moral evil autonomously they say that we have this ability i'm going to quote <clears throat> one more roman catholic source this is from the new catholic encyclopedia under the section controversies on grace this is another quote in opposition to both sects, Lutherans and Calvinists, the Council of Trent defined as dogma the survival of moral freedom in spite of original sin, end quote. So, Roman Catholics dogmatically teach today that we have moral freedom before God to do right or to do wrong. They claim Augustine and they teach that we have moral freedom. Does that sound like stuff that Augustine teaches? No, that's not what he taught. Does that sound like what the Bible teaches? That we are only wounded in our nature? That we don't have personal fault towards God in our birth because of original sin? Or that we have the moral capacity to do right or wrong in his eyes? That we have the ability to please him or not please him with our moral freedom? Is that the way the Bible talks? Well, what about the fact that there's none who do good? Have they read Romans 3, for instance? Actually, what do you know? I have Romans 3 open right now. I'm going to read some. Romans 3, starting at chapter 9. The Apostle says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Wow. The scriptures say no one does righteous. Not even one. Where, where is this moral freedom that Pelagius talks about? That the Roman Catholics talk about? See, again, they say that they're, they don't agree with Pelagius. But they teach the freedom of moral will just like Pelagius taught. Go a little bit further in your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's see what the apostle said in Ephesians 2. I'm going to start at verse 1 and read a few of them. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were wounded in our trespasses, no, I deliberately misspoke there. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. 
No one may boast of this moral freedom, this unstained nature where we have this goodness and ability to autonomously choose to be right before God. No, not one. It is the gift of God alone. You are dead. It is the work of God to make you come alive, to give you a new heart. This is the gift that Augustine talked about, because it's what scripture talks about. Pelagius didn't talk about this. Rome doesn't believe this. The Bible does. So does Augustine. I promised you a quote from him earlier. This is from Dianima Eius Origin, or translated on the Origin of the Soul, section 4, 11, 16. This is a direct quote from Augustine. All human beings are headed toward condemnation because they are born of Adam, unless they are reborn in Christ. Furthermore, God has provided that they should be born again before they die, and he is the most generous donor of grace to those whom he has predestined to eternal life, just as he is the most righteous avenger on those whom he has predestined to eternal death. That is Augustine. Does that sound like Roman Catholic, like Rome's teaching? No, that sounds more like biblical teaching. Getting back onto the the history of these things. In 418, Pelagius died, but in the year 426, Augustine is an old man. He senses that his days were numbered. He chose a man named Heraclius as his successor. He, they governed the church together for a few years. Heraclius would be consecrated as a bishop in Hippo. And during, Augustine actually survived a few more years than he thought. And during those last few years of his life, he did something that nobody had done before. He went over all of his previous works and updated them with how his views had developed and he fixed different things. It's a book called Retractions, where nobody had done this. It's, it's amazing. He goes back and he corrects all of his earlier works. This was a very cool thing that he did. We're grateful for it. But as happens in war, you remember that Rome was attacked back in 410. Well, another tribe, this one, the Vandals, they made it into North Africa and they surround the city of Hippo and they lay siege to the city of Hippo. They put the city under siege. Augustine survives for a while, but in the year 430, he passes away while the city is under siege. We don't know if he died because of the effects of the siege, that food and resources weren't coming in. Did he die from that, or just he would have died then anyway? We don't know, but he did die while Hippo was under siege from the Vandals. A few days after he dies, the city surrendered. The Vandals would, they were like an Aryan, they had Aryan views, which I won't get into now, but not good stuff. They ruled the area for about a hundred years, but the Byzantines would retake the city. They were kind of like the Eastern Roman Empire. The Byzantines come, they retake it, they rule it for about 150 years. But in the year 698, it falls to Muslim Arabs, and it has remained, North Africa and the area of Hippo has remained under Muslim Arab control ever since. But well before 698, well before it fell to the Muslim Arabs, uh, the Africa that Augustine knew disappeared. It, it had long disappeared. Heraclius seems to have been the final bishop, the one that Augustine helped consecrate. He seemed to be the last bishop in the area. And the area went into serious decline after that. But Augustine's works were being copied 
and brought all over the empire, all over the Latin-speaking world, that his influence was already circulating during his life, and even more so after he died. So his influence goes on, but the world that Augustine knew changed very fast after his death. And with Augustine's death, it is safe to say that the great days of the North African church came to a close. See, for him, there was always a strong North African church. But after he died, it went into decline. Like if, if He would have never known that Africa would turn the way that it did and it become mostly Muslim and there's no strong Christian church there. It is somewhat a sad historical fact that Augustine, an African bishop, his primary legacy went with the Western church and not with the African church and how he must long for the people of Africa to return to the gospel, to embrace Christ, that he may, he may have a legacy there too and be a teacher of Africa, not just of the West. But th therein lies his historical importance. So to summarize, how free is my free will and to whom does the glory belong? Well, you have natural freedom. You have the freedom to act in accordance with your nature. But your nature is fallen in sin. We are dead before God. We need to be made alive. And God, by his grace, grants us faith. And this gives us the moral will to be able to please him. After he gives us this gift of faith, we can do good works and please him. But you cannot do that before you are given the new nature, before the Holy Spirit regenerates you. So to whom does all glory belong? You'll know the answer. All glory goes to God, who saves us to the uttermost and saves us in his love.